Thank you for being alive today and uh, feeling everything you're feeling and being concerned. I appreciate you. You're not alone. It's me, Jessica Seeley. I'm a comedian and I am doing this podcast about climate change for some reason. I really like this episode with Nato Green. Um, he's a smart guy. Um, I did end up getting a little... Um, emotional at some point but you know what I just got to say that uh, everything I feel at every point is a uh, part of my process and it's beautiful so fuck you um good I went to the strike on Friday in San Francisco I was in San Francisco and uh it was it was really nice I gotta say sometimes it was a little sad it's a little sad to see children carrying signs that are like oil is killing me <laughs> whatever it's, uh, but, uh, you know, the young people, not that I'm not young, I'm fucking young, okay, but the youngest people have the most to lose here, so, um, backing them up feels really good, backing up indigenous groups feels really good, being in a community of people that are, um, speaking out towards this is, like, really relieving, and it's happening again, this Friday, there's so many strikes around the world. Go online to see if there's one near you. I think you can look at, there's various websites, 350.org or um, uh, Fridays for Future or sometimes Greenpeace has um, um, Sunrise Movement, uh, Youth versus Apocalypse, all these websites you can look and, you know, Call out sick from work on Friday, this Friday the 27th, and uh, get involved. It's weird. It's a huge relief. Like, you think that avoiding the climate crisis is what's going to give you the most relief, but actually acting out on it will make you um, strangely more at peace uh, with living in a strange time. Because avoiding your role in everything, it can it can actually create a lot more buildup of tension and anger and confusion in your body so um just start putting one foot in front of the other and let's do this I realize this is just me processing what the hell I'm gonna do um with all this and that's why it's good that I interviewed Nato Green because he also kind of talks about mentorship and his mentorship as like an activist and uh, I realize I'm going to seek out more mentorship and community in this podcast. Everyone say hello to that helicopter. I hope they find all the bad guys they're looking for. Um, yeah, so maybe this podcast is a lot about finding mentorship and community. Uh, and being at this march, I, I talk a lot of shit about my own podcast because it's just like, what? <laughs> what? This sucks. <laughs> but... Um, when I was at the climate strike, I was like, even if my podcast isn't that good, it's not the worst thing I could be doing at this time in history. Like, it, it does feel like I'm doing it for some reason. I have some instinctual desire. 
and, uh, you know, <clears throat> I'm kind of figuring out how to click into this climate stuff and still be a comedian and, uh, bring myself into the situation. And, uh, it's hard because as some of you know, I have some like mental health stuff. And there was some times in the strike where I could feel like my rage building up, which some of you were like, that's good. But it's like, my rage will actually break me. It won't be very um, productive. So I kind of had to like pet my arm a little bit and be like, shh, calm down. You're bringing your calm self to the march. Um, Because that's just what's sustainable for me is to kind of uh, soothe myself. And... uh, you know, I be balanced. I feel like also have trying to bring some balance to it, which is really hard because it's such a fucked situation. Um, but the more balance to it, the more good I'll be able to bring to it. Because as we've seen throughout history, some of the people that start losing their shit, um, you know, check out the French Revolution sometimes. Uh, they they kind of make it a little bit too messy. So I'm I'm trying to keep it. I'm trying to keep it cute, and um, I just have to say that I can't stop thinking about the Dark Crystal <laughs> series on Netflix because um, there's some construction noises. I hope I hope that's okay with you guys. There's no construction noises on the actual interview, but anyway, <laughs> Dark Crystal is all about like um, healing division, and it's got really great Muppets in it, and. Um, it's kind of about like healing the earth and like being connected to the earth and like the Skeksis are like this really great comic gross portrayal of um, evil uh, uh, exploiters for their own power and um, immortality. So check out the Dark Crystal. You know, I talked a little bit about it with uh, Riley Silverman when she was on, but um, kind of processing some stuff through fantasy is, uh, kind of helpful for me. Um, I don't know if that makes any sense, but, uh, just watching those, uh, Gelfling rise up against the Skeksis, like they didn't really like question whether or not they should. Once they figured out something was wrong, they were like, oh shit, we got to go. There was this one Skeksy that kind of waff, or this one Gelfling that waffled for a minute, but Overall, it was just like, yeah, like, we might not have a chance, but we rise up. That's what we do, right? Like, isn't that when you realize someone's being fucked up, you try to stop them? That's it. It's simple. It's the Muppets. Get with it. Um, So I hope I see you guys at uh, various strikes this Friday. Um, If you're feeling isolated um, or having trouble clicking in with um, your role in the climate movement... So am I, but you're not alone, so go ahead and message me um, on Instagram or Facebook or whatever um, and let me know what your process is, and uh, maybe we can help each other. Um, All right, thanks, and uh, here's Nadal Green. All right. Hey, Nato Green. Thanks for doing uh, this podcast this morning in your beautiful house. This is not my beautiful house. This is not my beautiful <laughs> life. Perfect. Perfect. 
Uh, I'm so excited that you had time to do this because you're the most perfect person that I know to do this podcast of uh, broaching the subject of um, climate change with a comedian. Who better than you? Sure. Because <laughs> you, you're, you are have this kind of magical um, double threat of being an activist and having a ton of experience in that area and a comedian who you have a ton of experience in that area and I think a passion for both. Yeah, I wouldn't describe it as magic. I would describe it as an unhealthy compulsion oh, uh, yeah. to do both. Fair but, enough, fair uh, enough. Yeah, I do both at full speed. Okay, yeah. And you're a dad. And I'm a dad. Wow, well, you're like a renaissance man. I try um, so how, how did all of this, how, how, what came first, the comedy or the activism in your life? Uh, there, there's no, well, uh, I was a comedy fan. Like my enthusiasm for comedy and politics started together. So okay. when I was in junior high, once a week, my grandfather in Chicago would collect political cartoons from the newspapers and mail them to me. And then we would get on the phone and talk through them. And so my, I have no experience, like from the moment that I was aware of the news, it was through the lens of making fun of the news. Oh, wow. Um, that, that explains so much about you. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, but I was an organizer first. Like I was a county fan uh, in, you know, as a kid and in college, I did a, like a couple of open mics in Seattle, um, uh, in college and shortly thereafter, I was horrible, felt real bad. Uh, you went to college in Washington? I went to college, I went to Reed College in Portland, Oregon. Oh, okay, cool. And one of my best friends in college, his dad was the manager of the Comedy Underground in Seattle. Oh. And so. Wait, who's that? His name's Carl Warmanhoven. Okay, I he, don't know. He retired a few years ago. All right. Um, and so, like, we, for his 21st birthday, we went and, like, did the open mic at the underground. Uh, I was horrible, could not deal with my, like, the insecurity and having to be bad before you're good. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, but I didn't think of it as either or. I just, like, when was an organizer and then... Uh, continued to be a comedy fan, but was an organizer for starting from 22 on. Um, and then, uh, and then came back to comedy at 30, um, and have been doing comedy steadily for 14 years. Yeah. What about activism? Uh, yeah, I've been, and same, like, I mean, there were, there have been some gaps, you know, where I took time off, like, I took time off when we were living in Cuba, and I took time off to try doing comedy full-time for a couple of years, but basically, um, you know, I, I think this is accurate, I've, 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 like, done something, some level of volunteering and participation in every San Francisco election since 1998, uh, I, um, uh, it's all, it's all sort of been like, I, like I've been involved in the left. Like I, you know, I did my share of Marxist study groups. Um, sure, sure. And, uh, you know, some, I was in some, you know, a lot of, lot of panels in the mission with other communists. Uh, okay. And, um, very cool. 
you know, and a lot sort of generally interacting with the left, but it was all for me from connecting to the labor movement and, um, and the idea of organizing workers around, around changing them, the world that they live in. And so, uh, currently my, like what you would call my day job, uh, I work for the service employees international union. Our local is a large local government local that covers all of Northern California. So cities and counties, um, and, uh, I have a bit of a weird job, but basically, um, mostly I do, I lead contract negotiations for unions. So are you like unions have contracts? That's, that's what unions do in, in this country is we negotiate contracts for our members. And so our local, we have about 65,000 members in somewhere between 150 to 200 separate contracts all over Northern California and mostly, most of my life, I just go from negotiation to negotiation, working with groups of workers to go to the table with their employer and tell, identify their priorities and then figure out how to fight for them. Uh, so. Yeah, you've been someone that I've personally called when I'm having an issue with an employer and you, you helped me get unemployment when I got um, Shot, uh, let let go really quickly from a restaurant job, and that that didn't make my restaurant very happy. So uh, they have they have you to blame for that. And like, I was kind of surprised. <laughs> I felt like I I conjured you last week um, from the <laughs> mist because I was at a comedy kind of party, and then uh, someone was like, "Why can't comedians unionize?" And I was like, I don't know. I feel like I've heard that it's been tried or something. And I was like, you know who you need to talk to? Nato Green. And then you just like appeared. Um, <laughs> like like a, we just sprinkled some, some dust. And then all of a sudden you were like, did somebody say unionize? <laughs> Nato Green. <laughs> uh, what was it, that conversation like? It was great. I mean, you know, and then these people were like, how do we organize this group of workers? Um, I mean, you know, like I'm very, like I'm all about the, you know, the, the, the pop-up organizing conversation. Like yeah. This, this week, uh, for, with my union, we had a, a job action where we, we shut down the health commission. Like we had a group of people who we were pissed about the city, something the city was doing at SF General Hospital. And we had brought in 80 people and shouted down the health commission until they all gave up and left. And there were reporters everywhere. And it was all over the news. And that was Tuesday, and by Friday, the city had backed down on the thing that we were trying to stop them from doing. But there was like a group of a dozen nursing students uh, from San Francisco State sitting there watching the health commission. And somebody was like, Nana, why don't you talk to them? So I, like I'd sat, I sat down with the nursing students, and I was like, so this isn't what you expected to happen. Do you have any questions? And they were like, yes, what the fuck is going on? <laughs> um, so, and it was great. Loved it. So like, you know how you have different friends that you call for different stuff? Like you have your friend who like, where you're like, I need to move. I need help moving. Or your friend who's like, you know, where you're like, I want to paint. What color should I use? Like you have different friends for different stuff. Uh, I don't know why all my examples are property related, but they are. Uh, <laughs> Like, I'm the friend that people call when they have problems that involve confrontation. Yeah. Uh, so, like, you know, and and it, it ends up being, like, a whole range of things. But my friends call me for help with 
uh, is a service I provide with, uh, uh, with confrontation. I, I, uh, my question I want to ask is like, how, how does all this kind of affect your mental state or emotional state? And I ask that because, um, I, I've found that, uh, well, and I guess, uh, part of that is like, does comedy help with that? Or like, where does maybe comedy fit into like your process of it? And the reason I ask like, uh, what's your emotional state in terms of, um, uh, intervening in these confrontations and all this, uh, stuff is because like, I personally, uh, have a lot of issues with my mental emotional state and I'm trying to balance just like, uh, keeping it running. And I think I'm not the only one. So I'm just kind of curious, like if you're like a superhero or if just like pressing forward helps you. Uh, I would, I mean, my mental emotional state about the state of the world is okay. Um, like, you know, I have moments, um, you know, I mean, it's like a lot of us since in the post 11, nine world, uh, since 2016, like I've had my darkest hours and, but I've sort of been through enough ups and downs that like, I sort of know what I need to do to take care of myself. You know what I mean? Like, I was just like, oh, I, I need to cry. So I'm going to, you know, mm, let, yeah. me, let, let me make that happen. I think a lot of people are holding that in. Yeah. I don't, I have no, I don't do any of that. Uh, yeah. You just, you know, that's really good. Like, I, you I feel know, like especially as a guy to just right. let it out. So, yeah, I mean, I will, you know, figure out how to get a cry when I need to cry and mm. will like, you know go and connect with my family and, and my loved ones and go off and enjoy nature. And I think, like, th I mean, here's the uh, the thing about, you know, so about any kind of social change is it cannot be, a, it's like, it's by definition isn't a solitary activity. Um, you know, that historically, communists, communist organizations created what they called cadre, these like cells of people who went off in groups to organize. And, you know, we talk, as much as we talk about like the, that it's, it, it was the ideology that motivated them, but it's also the, the group that they're part of. Like, um, that, you know, I have lifelong like ride or die comrades that I have been close to for, you know, 20 and 30 years who will listen to me at whatever length I need to be listened to about like what I'm thinking about and what I'm figuring out and, you know, understand the vision and understand the ups and downs and what it is that I'm trying to achieve. And then at some point we'll say, okay, now get back in the ring. Like, you okay. know, um, and so, you know, having organized like peer long-term peer support, I've also been pretty diligent over my life about cult. I mean, less less so now uh, that I'm that I'm older myself. But when I was younger, I was incredibly methodical about recruiting and training my own mentors. Um, mm, yeah, mentorship important. <laughs> so yeah, like um, you know, I uh, you know had the good fortune of like a bunch of you know old communists mostly, mostly black communists who were willing to spend a lot of time with me and answer all my dumb questions, uh, when I was younger and it, you know, has been like 
th that perspective has sort of anchored everything else that happened after that. You know, I mean, I don't want, like, I certainly don't want to sugarcoat it. Like, a lot of people, you know, I mean, th there have been times, I mean, I feel like here in San Francisco, because we cut, because the issues of the wildfires. Yeah. Um, Same in LA. Uh, you know, th I mean, there was a point last November yeah. where the air quality was so bad, we just, we had to split. Like, I, like, yeah. Um, so, you know, us and a couple other families, we like looked at the at the map to figure out the nearest place with decent air quality, and like made evacuated to Pismo Beach, you know, for a couple days just to get a break, and with the kids, and it was like like when when, you know, when the sky is red and yeah. it's hard to breathe outside, like let alone the poor and knowing that people are life being being destroyed, you know, like I just get I got so depressed and yeah. sad and discouraged and you know being on the beach with my kids who are exuberant all the time and like mm. uh you know I felt like I couldn't enjoy be and be present with my kids because I was so upset about the conditions we were in and um uh you know in like in in when I have felt the worst the thing that has sort of and been most confused, the thing that has sort of propelled me forward or gotten me out of that is knowing that um, whatever we're living through, at some point, we'll get to the other side of it. And it might be five years from now, and it might be 20 years from now, mm. 30 years from now. At some point, we will get to the, we'll, we'll get through the worst of what's happening now. And at some point, my kids are going to understand what happened mm. and when they're older. Yeah. And uh, um, I don't, I am, I don't, when that time comes, I don't want to be ashamed of myself and the choices I made. Yeah. Um, I think that a lot of people are kind of coming up against that. And there's people who aren't organizers, you know, they're like, you know, my aunt is an accountant. She listens to this podcast. She's probably my only consistent listener. I'm going to be honest. And, uh, but you know, like I have, I do have these people in my life that they're just, they're living their life and they're doing their job and they have their kids and what, whatever it is. So they, they're not, you know, they maybe have like these political conversations, like they're liberal with their family and stuff like that. Um, but like, you know, aren't as entrenched in like doing this work as you and just, you know, random people that I know, acquaintances in LA and stuff kind of mention like feeling isolated and feeling despair and feeling confused about like, like how to have that conversation and with, like maybe without having a meltdown or like without going to too dark of a place that whatever, like what, what would you say to those people as a way to like just get involved enough or find community enough in a way that um, helps them sleep or live and feel like they're doing what they should be doing? Well, I, I, I just, so I, I went, I went to the climate strike with my kids yeah. and one of them really wanted to go. And, uh, uh, Chloe brought her stilts and, and cruised. She was great. Eloise was like more on the fence about it. So ahead of time, Eloise said, I like, what's the point? What's the protesting mm. really going to do? And so then when we were at the March, 
as we were walking, I said to Eloise, how do you feel? Mm. I said, good. Uh, I said, what does the energy feel like here? Does this feel like, does this feel exciting and fun? Does this feel like a hopeful place? And Eloise said, yeah, this feels like a hopeful place. And I said, that's what the march does. Yeah. That the march isn't about like tearing it down. The uh, it it mar- the the action isn't necessarily about, you know, it's not like the CEO of Chevron is going to see the march and throw himself out a window <laughs> or like become a good person overnight. The Although I do like the drama of when we stopped at oh what is it? Black Rock or yeah. that place. I do like the drama of everyone yelling like come join us. Like I always imagine that they'll just like uh, slide down a rope and like tear their suit off and right. that that would be kind of there's that kind of <laughs> yeah I mean arc and so you know what I would say to people who feel isolated is, is like that uh, I mean two things one is that objectively we're not isolated that the, that you know if there's if anything is the lesson of the climate crisis it's that your aunt the accountant sitting in her office anywhere is like there's a straight line of cause and effect and connection between that and people fleeing from their homes when in burning villages in africa um so like we we are we are connected um and that you know there was there was an organizer i worked with um, and he, uh, who passed away this year actually, and he, we were getting ready to organize a strike and it was Passover and, uh, and, and, and people were scared about going on strike for the first time. And he, and he said, well, my, you know, we're getting ready for Passover and, uh, and Moses had to step into the Red Sea to make the water part. Like, it's one of the things that happens to people about hope is that they sit in their small lives and they care about the issues and, they, and they're scared and discouraged and isolated and they're waiting for some, some sign that there's hope to bring them out and that, that anything that they do will make a difference. And the way that hope works is that, like, you know, it's very much a we-make-the-road-by-walking kind of thing. That mm. it, it's not going to come to you sitting in the cubicle that... It's there if you go to look for it, right? Like that—that's you know part of the part of the story of, of every social change in history is like you never know what happens next, and you never know what the mm. you know it is a hundred percent guaranteed that there was somebody at one of those companies that we walked by, you know, in all the climate marches that happened all over the world, in all of those companies that we got marched by where people said, join us, somebody joined us yeah. at, at one of those things. We may not know about it yet. You know, they might not have told anybody. It might yeah. not have happened on Friday. It might, somebody might, you know, it might happen later, but it 100% definitely had to happen because that's, you know, that's just how social change works. Yeah. Um, and so frequently we don't see the, 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 the thing until, like, there's a lot of stuff sort of bubbling underneath and we wait for the big eruption to be like, oh, this is the thing I've been waiting for. But that stuff is happening all the time. Like, you know, I mean, this is, you know, though that November and December, right after Trump got elected, were so scary and people were so afraid. And yeah. like, we're genuinely wrestling with the question about whether we were all going to be rounded up and sent into concentration camps yeah. in, in like literal martial law. 
at, but none of us knew. Right. None of us knew that the women's march was around the corner. Right. Uh, none of us knew that the airport occupations were right around the corner. Yeah. And, um, and that it's not that those things are guaranteed, but that you know, or that we don't have we don't have to do anything to create those things, but we have to know that, you know, the human spirit is unquenchable, and that people keep people keep looking for those opportunities, and that those opportunities always that those moments always happen, and you know. If you're if you're ready to respond and receive, then it's it's much easier to get moving. Yeah, I um <clears throat> I have been experiencing like these brief pangs of hopelessness, and uh, I generally try to keep you know, uh, especially since Trump got elected, I I've been realizing like oh I have to really nurture my hope and my and my positivity or like my, you know, I have to, um, uh, work harder. So that was kind of a wake up call, um, in terms of like, just like, you know, what did you say that was so good about the path and the walking the way that you would, (laughs) (laughs) I was like, yeah, but then I forgot it. Apparently it is the morning time. So please, uh, forgive me. We make the road by walking. We make the road by walking. I really love that. But yeah, I'm not super sharp uh, this a.m. Uh, but uh, yeah, I, I've been experiencing this. And I, I do see every kind of like Facebook post of, of someone being like, we don't have a chance. And then my body is like, oh, is that true? Or like uh, the headliner I'm working with this weekend is like, oh, people in San Francisco think they can change it. They think whatever. And then I was like, can we not change it? Like, I, I do have these moments where I'm, like, where I'm like, am I an idiot? Am I, like, crazy right now for thinking that we can slow climate change and we can, um, and, and we can um, distribute power? And, like, it, it's just, like, I do have these moments where I'm like, am I a goof? Yeah. <laughs> I, I started... Um... You know, I've slowed down a bit, although people, I mean, it, I get I get requests now, but um, I started making these lists. I started on Facebook, I started making these hope lists um, where, like, I would, you know, something, there was, it started sort of spontaneously where, like, I was seeing people post on social media all the stuff about how, how terrifying it was and how discouraging it was and how bad it was. And I felt like I was seeing these signs all over the world of like incredibly hopeful things happening, and it's victories. Well, you know, not enough, yeah. not fully enough, frequently tactical or procedural, but victories all over the world. And 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 I was confused by why people were like it was so black and white. It was like things are awful or things are great, and and um, this is one of the things actually that like living in Cuba really cultivated for like li- one of the things that is you really cultivate living in Cuba is is a level of comfort with contradictions yeah uh, that like oh that's important that, that, yeah <laughs> you know that you that things that you can be absolutely heartbroken and devastated and frightened by yeah. you know the fires in the Amazon and mm. the ways that people are suffering and fully celebrate and hope be hopeful and inspired by the victories that, that are happening at the same time 
without either side of it negating the other part. Um, and so I started posting these things and they like kind of took off. And now people like, I get messages from people being like, Hey, I feel bad. I need you to do one of your hopeless. Um, oh and, man, and, I don't know why. I think my algorithm only shows me <laughs> negative shit. Yeah. And so then, <laughs> um, I need to start paying attention. And then, so, and I was doing them and Rebecca Solnit, uh, wrote this book initially during the Iraq war called Hope in the Dark. Yeah. Have you read it? No, but it's been recommended to me. And it's, it's like, I really need to start picking up these positive things because my brain skews extremely negative. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I like I had heard, read, sort of, she had done like articles about it, like the, sort of the similar sentiment of the book. And I got it from the library on audiobook, and it's like five hours. So it's it's great. Um, and, but so she sort of has, I, you know, I talked to her about it and she was like, this is kind of the, uh, you know, she sort of thinks of herself as being in the, in, to some extent in like the department of hope studies. And so, you know, she was sort of like, uh, has, has really encouraged me to keep doing those lists. And then when I do them, she reshares them to people. Oh, cool. Um, just cause it's like. That, that, you know, frequently it's like, peop, you know, all these different, different stories go by our feeds and we're inundated. And, it, and it's hard to remember that the technology is not designed to make us feel good. Right? The technology isn't designed to motivate us to action. Uh, and so I just putting all the stuff that I was seeing in one place, in one list, um, to be like, guys, this is what happened this week. Like, wow. why, 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 you know, it's not that it's, I mean, it's not that it's not that bad, but it's not like this idea that it's all hopeful, hopeless. And also like, uh, I feel like it's a lot of people are feeling so powerless right now. It feels like we're being bombarded with like, oh, children are in camps. Oh, the Amazon's burning. And it, I, I think some of it is like, is like, we're, we're so bogged down that it's like, um, it's kind of like. Make, making us feel like we actually have uh, less power than we actually do. I don't know. Right. Absolutely. So, yes. I mean, and, yeah, there, you know, and particularly on climate change, there's some people, you know, who are like, it doesn't matter what the U.S. does. It's all about China. It's like, thanks, motherfucker. You know? Yeah. <laughs> so, um, so uh, you know, it's certainly it's hard to talk about on stage because like people don't, I mean, it's the same reason why I'm pretty careful when I talk about like, you know, black lives matter and racist police violence against black people, like on stage, there's sort of like trying to figure out how to, how to talk about the thing with the minimal amount of exposition so that people don't get wallowing in despair before I can get to the little joke about it, you know? Yeah. Um, uh, or to or to talk about it in a kind of like round the back way. We talk about something that's a, enough adjacent to it that people will think of it, but not um, not like hey. So we're all you know. I'll tell I tell you what. I mean the the the, I, the big IPCC climate report last year that came out. People, I don't think people yeah. realized that re, re, like associate these two quite so sharply, but the. IPCC climate report, 
the first news story about it came out the same weekend as, as Kavanaugh was confirmed. Yeah, that was dark. And I, <laughs> and, and I was by myself in a hotel room in Philadelphia. Yeah. Because I was featuring at the Philly Punchline. And I was miserable. Yeah. And I like, uh, look, you know, I did the job, but I was like, I was so sad. And then I... Sad on stage too? I just, you know, like... I wasn't sad on stage. I just like, like my heart wasn't in it. It didn't. Right, right, right. I frankly have been feeling a lot of that even since Trump got elected, uh, doing comedy. Like sometimes I'll have a set where I'm like, that was a great audience and what I was doing, uh, connected and it felt aligned with what I'm about right now. But in general, I feel like, uh, I'm, I'm having a disconnect of like, um, and I, I think part of it is I'm not a super political comedian. So it is like, uh, am I going to go up and like, uh, tell a Tinder joke right now? I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> like, like when shit's on fire and I have a show, it's kind of like, what's my role as a comic today? <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, and, and, and I, you know, like, I really struggle with that, that, you know, I have, like, I have all these organizing skills, and I feel like, and, you know, no one has said this to me, but I feel like in this moment when things are so messed up and so urgent, it feels self-indulgent for me to, like, not, not be organizing, you know what I mean, like, that, so, you know, whenever there's a temptation to, like, quit the union world and just go do comedy full time. It's like, what am I, you know, if if I'm going to do anything, it's going to be to quit comedy to do organizing full time. Like, I don't think I can quit comedy because I would lose my mind, but it's like, Mm -hmm. I I do comedy because just because I've like made peace with the fact that I'm a comic, (laughs) Um, but not because I expect it to. It's like a diagnosis. Yeah. Like I'm just a, I'm a person who talks into microphones. That's just a thing that I know about myself. Um, (laughs) It's not like. Uh, I'm an ass man and I talk into microphones. <laughs> there are two things you need to know about me. Um, so, uh, you know, the, it's not like I, it's not like it's supposed to go anywhere, you know, or those are like, your flaws. You're right. an ass man and you're talking to microphones. And I talk into microphones. <laughs> uh, uh, so you can be flawed and be, and still organize and be involved. Uh, there's no way around it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Very much so. So, uh, you know, so it's like I, I'm, I'm still a, I'm still a comic because I'm a comic, not because I think my, you know, I, 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 I think my comedy career, I'm, you know, like, whenever I'm in LA, I just find it so depressing, like being around people who are like trying to figure out how to work through this corrupt system. So yeah, and it, it is, it is a rough time. I, um, I will say though, I mean, can you imagine like reading the, I'm sorry, reading the news about like, you know, we have, uh, you know, maybe 12 years, maybe less to reduce carbon emissions enough or 150 million people will die because of particulate inhalation. And so I'm going to go, you know, uh, punch up some jokes for impractical jokers. Do you know what I mean? Like, it just seems like. Like, I can't imagine 
you know, because people work really hard on those shows. I just can't imagine being like on set on some show that's like fine. It's f- maybe funny, but it's like not about anything. I think a lot of people in LA um, do some heavy compartmentalizing. Like, okay, I have heard that. Yeah, and uh, I I'm trying to you know I'm from LA, so I I. I, even if I wasn't a comic, I think I would I would end up there. It feels like home to me, but uh, but I, I'm trying to uh, kind of navigate like who I am through all of this. But one one thing I will say about uh, your comedy um, and the comedy of uh, remember when you were doing the the Laugh Against the Machine tour with Kamau Bell, W. Kamau Bell, Janine Brito, and Hari Kondabolu. Um, I found out about you guys because I, I was in college and, the, and I booked Harry Kondabolu for a, a show that I was doing in college. Um, and uh, I, I'm sure I made it. Do, 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 do you want a podcast exclusive? Yeah. <clears throat> Before we settled on Laughter Against the Machine, Hari wanted that tour to be called The Hip Professors of Comedy. Ew! <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to be honest. Okay, so like I, yeah, I brought him to my college and it was, I think my last year of college and then I was... I was a really, I was a really active activist in college, and I was, I was, I was doing a lot of stuff on, uh, uh, you know, I mean, at first it was like uh, a lot of Iraq War stuff, and then it was like I, a lot of like anti-racist stuff, and then also feminist. And I was trying to do a lot of stuff around rape culture on my campus, but I, I, I was ha- had a lot of unresolved trauma and addiction and mental health stuff, so it, it made activism. Um, kind of a traumatizing and uh, a little bit, I think I, I was maybe a little abusive. I think like when I called people out, it was like I wanted them to cry. Like I was like lashing out. Right. And, uh, but so that's fun. Yeah. I mean, I was young. I don't, I don't regret it. <laughs> no, I don't know. I, I think I had to experience uh, anger in the way that I did in, in the, in the process, but like, and then I, and then I wanted to get into comedy. So I was like, Oh, who does activism and comedy? And then I, I brought uh hurry to, to the campus and, um, and, uh, had a huge crush on him by the way. Uh, which, you know, now, now things are, uh, a lot has happened, but I, I probably, <laughs> I probably made a, a really, uh, interesting drunk impression on him, but he was very nice. And, uh, I was, I was very depressed. Like my depression and suicidalness at that time was so thick. And, uh, but he was like, you know, check out Nato Green Janine Brito and I was like YouTubing you guys and uh and it really I swear to god it kept me alive like it kept me going I'm getting a little emotional I'm always emotional um but yeah I I really uh I really do see how comedy can be important for people and uh uh yeah but since college, I think I've kind of dropped the activism because I was kind of a little ugly about it. And now that things are, you know, I've done whatever work I've done on myself. Uh, I, and things are, you know, so clearly in need of activism and stuff like that. I'm trying to figure out how can I uh, come back to it in a way that's uh, balanced. Uh, and uh, coming from a place of uh, kindness and, and good and not bringing all my um, dark darkness into it. 
Well, I mean, you bring your whole self to it. And, like, I think, you know, one of the things that happens as people become active, I mean, this is the experience of every young person who gets politicized, is, like, there's this, mo- there's this moment where it's like, this is great, all we have to do is tell the people, you know, and then everything will be different. And, and, then, right. and then you hit this, like, you come crashing into this wall of disappointment, and, it, right. and you know... And, and discover that people are way more damaged than we thought. Yeah. Um, and that, like, our, you know, that the, like, mechanistic vision of human psychology, that, like, people just need the right information to be liberated, it will, is that, that that's actually wrong. And so now, like, increasingly, there are some people who are th- thinking pretty actively about questions of, like, trauma-informed organizing. Um, yeah. And stuff like that. But, uh and you know the like union organizing is not that like union people we have our strengths but thinking about how people feel is not <laughs> like people's emotional state is not necessarily one of them um but the um uh what was i going to say the um it's you know with for me with like like part of why i think the you know the comedy for me is about like like when i can get people let to laugh it's just like i'm not alone in my head yeah uh and that matters to me yeah and you know and there's some amount of there's i mean there's it sort of does double duty like there's some amount of of you know communicating ideas in a different way that people who don't agree with me politically can find useful or aren't there yet or, you know, like, develop, you know, are liberal but not, like, you know, uh, and, um, you know, and so sometimes that happens and and I hear from people about that sometimes. But, like, I also think, you know, we can't, um... I, you know, I think we can't underestimate how important it is to give the people on the front lines a chance to laugh. Like, that was initially the idea of Laughter Against the Machine was people are out there doing big work and those those people need a laugh. And let's, let's do the, you know, like, we saw that there was a, that there was a history of musicians going to, like, mm-hmm. where the organizing was happening in the protests and, like, doing free concerts. And there wasn't really a culture of comedians doing that. And so we were like, let's do that. Let's give comedy to the people who... And so, you know, the, the, the pinnacle of that for Laughter Against the Machine was during Occupy Wall Street when, like, we had a show at the New Parish in Oakland the night that the Oakland Police Department raided the Occupy Oakland encampment. I mean, it was like... So, literally, like, they had flooded Franco-Gawa Plaza... There were riot police everywhere, helicopters, people in the streets. Literally, it was like people walked from, and there were all these people protesting there, and people came to our show from that. It was like, you know, that night I joked that uh, uh, it was the only comedy show where everyone in the audience had the ACLU's phone number written in Sharpie on their arm. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So, uh, you know, the, like... 
And it was the one of the most electric nights of comedy I've ever seen because people were so like those yeah. people were like in it. They were they were they were hopeful because they were involved in this incredible movement, but they were also um, uh, you know ready to um, you know they were they like it was those people found it incredibly cathartic to get to laugh. Uh, that's a good memory. So, you know, <laughs> that's rad. And so, I mean, that's like, that's what we, um, you know, I, I feel like, like there's a, there's a important part of comedy for that. Um, I, I headlined the punchline. Was it late 2016, 2017? It was late 2016. I had that line headline December. People were still very discouraged. That's tough. And that's a tough time. Yeah. People were very discouraged and sold out the show. Wow. And, uh, and it was, again, it was a lot of activists and this, this thing had just happened where like a month earlier, Janine had been staying up here uh-huh. and there was an incident with a raccoon. Do you know what I'm talking about? No. So frequently we have raccoons on the roof in this neighborhood Oh my gosh. And <laughs> over there is a light well and a baby raccoon had fallen down into the light well. And so we, Janine and I was like 1130. you raised it? Yeah, right. <laughs> Janine breastfed the baby raccoon. <laughs> and we, um, and there were like other raccoons on the roof down, like the parents were down looking at the thing, but they couldn't get down and the baby couldn't get back up. And like, we were scared about getting clawed to death. And, uh, and so we called animal control and this lady showed up at midnight. Like she was like, okay, I'll be there in 15, you know, be there in 15 minutes. And this lady comes and she rescues the raccoon and puts it back with her, with its family. And she was also like, she looked like a suicide girl. She was all like tatted up oh. with hipster glasses. And... I have a crush on this person who yeah. I've never met. <laughs> yeah, right. But that sounds like my dream person. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Some baby ras- raccoon rescuing babe. Uh, right. Well, and so she, we, you know, we get on the phone and it, like, I'd never called animal control before. And, and she's like, uh, and I go, um, uh, is raccoon. And she's like, is there, do you have, do you have a, is there a, uh, is there a fire escape or some way to get up on the roof? And I was like, no. And then she goes, is there a nearby roof I can jump from? And I was like, <laughs> What are you? <laughs> She's like, I am the knight. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and then I was like, how much is this going to cost? And she was like, oh, this is just your tax dollars at work. Like, it's free. And so then she, sh- this lady shows up 15 minutes later. Like, is like, you know, Janine and I are scared, right? Um, and, you know, uh, gets the raccoon goes up on the roof, has an app, uh, has sound recordings on her phone of, um, of raccoons. Anyway, I tell you that story because that happened. And then a month later, I'm headlining the punchline. I got that lady's information and I invited her to the show, uh, where I was at the punchline and Janine was with me on the show. And so I closed my set by bringing her and Janine up and retelling the story. And it was this kind of thing of like, and, and the story was great and it, and people laughed a lot. And I was like, see everybody, there are heroes everywhere. You know? <laughs> <laughs> um, and, yeah. and people were like, this is what we needed to hear. 
Wow. I needed to hear that too. I need, I also am going to, I'm about to find a raccoon and put it in your house so we can call her. (laughs) Uh, That's cool. Well, okay. So I'm running out of time a little bit and I did want to touch on a little bit of the specific um, work you're doing around unions and climate change because that is super interesting. That's something I would think of, but uh, uh, tell me how, how you think that, uh, that, that is uh, uh, re- related. <laughs> um, so uh, I think, you know, the, the, um, what the science says, if you believe in science, what the science says mm. um, <laughs> is, if I can summarize, everyone needs to do everything immediately. that's what the science says so that gives us a lot of room to maneuver and for at for unions like like again i work for a local government union we represent cities and counties and other public agencies and so identifying what are the ways that our members work is affected by climate change is not hard and both, what is our member, the ways, there are many ways in which our members' work is affected by responding to the climate crisis or like reducing, you know, reducing carbon emissions, shifting to alternative energy, blah, blah, blah. So, um, you know, a lot of it, the, the conversation in the labor movement is what people are calling bargaining for the common good. The idea that unions are not just a vehicle for our own members, but that unions are a vehicle for collective struggle for our entire communities. And that the 20 last year was, and this year so far to date, are is the most workers on strike in the United States since the early 80s. Oh, I didn't uh, know that. Um, yeah. Congratulations. Thank you. <laughs> so... And, and it appears that solidarity is contagious, that like workers see workers going on strike and they're like, maybe I could do that. And then they go on strike. It's great. And strikes are great. You should go on strike. Big strikes. Love it. They're trans, they're, they transform people. Um, and uh, uh, the, and strikes are the, like one of the biggest ways that working people assert power. Um, so, you know, the, there's, there's a fantastic book, Black Jacobins, about the, the uh, Haitian slave revolution in 1798 mm, yeah. by C.L.R. James, my favorite uh-huh. line from the book, the rich have not been defeated until they're running for their lives. Um, <laughs> Hell yeah. So, um, so the, um, uh, and strikes are part of that. Um, so, you know, so there's been this conversation about bargaining for the common good, and so, our, our unions, like, you know, it's starting a little bit, but I think it's, it, it is accelerating, and I'm pushing it within my own union, of things like, of things where there's a connection between the work that our members do. What our members are fighting against is, like, neoliberalism and austerity, budget cuts, privatization of public work, shifting things from, you know, shifting public services from city public workers who have good jobs with pensions and benefits to like nonprofits where that pay $20 an hour with no retirement plan. Um, and so what our members are concerned about is fighting for investment in public services that, that allows the quality of their jobs to improve. Um, and 
the Green New Deal is the vehicle of that. Like, you know, we represent, um, so for instance, we represent public transit agencies. So obviously fighting for increased investment in public transit is part of, um, is part of reducing carbon emissions. We represent public city planning departments and building inspectors. So fighting for ener energy efficiency and green building standards um, and you know transit-oriented development uh, and affordable housing is like our members are are both the beneficiaries of those policies because they that they they can't afford to live in luxury condominiums, um, but also they are the ones who would care implement those policies. Um, we represent uh, public works departments and parks departments, the people who would be building bike lanes and planting trees in cities. Um, uh, you know, we, uh, and, um, we are, you know, and planning for building for like storm runoff and flood surging and, you know, things like that. Um, and you know, that that's all, that's all the work that our members do. Um, we, you know, as we represent public health nurses who are, you know, first responders. And so training them, I mean, one of the things we're talking about rolling out in a much more large scale is like, you know, there's a, there, there's a bunch of, of like clinical knowledge and emergency protocols that people need to learn to be able to take care of people as a result of the wildfires. You know, mm -hmm. how do you, like, how do uh, public health nurses, you know, how do nurses screen patients for the, uh, uh, you know, medical effects of particulate inhalation? How do you do medical histories for people who have lost all their documentation where you don't know what medications they're on and have not, you know, and they may not be able to get you their medical records. Um, and then you have to worry about their reactions. Like there's, there's all this capacity that we need to build up. And so partly like what I'm introducing to our members is, and we, have, our members have the same problem that, that everybody else has, which is climate change is depressing and overwhelming. And they're concerned about it in an abstract way, right. but they feel like, what does this have to, how can I, little old me, do anything about this? I'm and glad so, you said abstract, because that, that's a really good word to describe, I think, how people feel about it. Like, it's not, it's hard right. to connect with. Yeah, and, and I mean, and it's hard to connect with because it's like, you know, the the messaging about about climate change is like frequently, like from a, from a perspective of political messaging, like you've ever, if you ever go to a training on political communications, the stuff on climate change is literally the worst possible thing. Like you never mm. want to do political messaging on like scientists say that there's right. a study that carbon particulate, you know, parts per million, like that's horrible. Like right. you can't put that on a billboard that people aren't motivated by that story. What the, what the story that you want in a, in you know, and that if we don't do something in right, 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 drastic right, right. now, 30 years from now, some other bad things. Like, people can't think. That's not how human brains work. That fucking sucks for my brain. Yeah. My brain fucking hates that. So, <laughs> right. So, um, but, you know, what, 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 we, what is needed is, you know, what political messaging requires is villains and victims and, oh. and hope. Okay. You know, that, I mean, here's, here, here's, here's organizing 101 is to organize anybody, you, the organizing conversation is, things are messed up, they can be better, we have a plan, it involves you. That's an interesting about villains and victims, because I think one of the issues with 
climate changes. It's like, yes, we have these, you know, oil tycoons or whoever, you know, fossil fuel executives that have, that are, you know, Coke brothers or is it Coke brother now? Single? (laughs) You smiled when I said that. Okay. So, um, uh, but like, you know, there is that, but I think people are also feeling, um, so we do have villains, but I think people are also feeling like every one of us is also the villain as some, you know, cause there's a lot of emphasis on individual action, which I think is good, you know, whatever, eat vegan, don't drive, don't fly, stuff like that. Like people, but I think people are stressed out about how much of their life is intertwined with the problem. And it's like, oh, am I evil? Like, am I a villain? Like, how can I live right now? Right. And, uh, yeah, I mean, and certainly, like, in preparing for the climate march, we were talking about that with the kids. And one of my kids, Chloe, I mean, it's an intuitive response, but she just, like, walked around the house turning out lights. And I was like, that's good, but that's not really the thing. Like, we have solar panels, you know? Yeah. Um, so, uh the, I mean, the other thing that I think is so important when you're talking about organizing people around climate change is, like, the, the housing crisis is the climate crisis. The immigration crisis is the climate crisis. The, that, uh, I wrote, I wrote, a, I used to have a column in one of the local papers here, and I wrote a column, and the, and the headline was, Whiteness Cooks the Planet. Um, that, oh, I th- that I think, that <laughs> I think, I think... Like, I think that, that, you know, and it's not, it's not a particularly subtle argument, but that like the, the, the voter base for the fossil fuel industry is white racist people. Like, yeah. you know, it's not black people voting for climate denial. It's racist white people. And that like, and it's a little bit bonkers to me, but that there's some, that the white people who are voting for Trump and who are not voting for, you know, who are scared about the Green New Deal, like... That they, on some level, are like, I'm really upset about a black stormtrooper, so I'm going to blow up the whole world. Totally. Uh, It's the way that um, white supremacy or whatever is being weaponized right now is like, um, it's like we're we're trading everything (laughs) for like, I don't know, like I do, I do have um, some Trump voters in my family. And it's like that, that's their main concern in life is that whiteness is preserved or something like that. And it's, it's very, it's very bizarre. And, uh, it's, to me, it's, it's like, right. Like whiteness is like a made up thing. And I'm like, you're, you're putting all your soul in life and identity and whatever into something that it doesn't, it doesn't mean anything to me. I'm not attached to whiteness because it's not like a real thing to me. Yeah, right. It says, I mean, uh, yes. And I mean, that's I'm what, sure I am subconsciously, like I, I you know, whatever. Sure. But uh, I but, think that there's a, I think that there's a thing of like, um, this is this is why I have been moving away from talking about white privilege, because I think like white privilege exists. It's a real thing. It like the the things that people describe when they describe white privilege are real, but as an organizing strategy, I think it's pretty limited. Like, I think the, 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 you know, because of what the science of climate change is, right, the, like, the white people who can be organized around solidarity and being allies is, that's going to be limited. 
And like, hmm. we don't have the luxury of not winning over, like, we need to get majority votes. We need a super majority of the electorate ready to vote for massive, for a Green New Deal, you know, and, and the racism of some people in the electorate cannot be an obstacle because, because then we all burn. So, mm. um, you know, what, I mean, certainly what this, what the science of climate change means is that people of color are on the front lines and are going to, are going to get it worse. But what, what, here's what white privilege means to me is that I'm not going to be a climate refugee, but my children will be. And that's better than some people, but it's still not that good. I'm not the one who's going to be with fucking Elon Musk on his escape pod to Mars, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, I wouldn't really want to be, to be honest. Right, that yeah. sounds like it a sounds, shit show. It sounds like a living hell. Those people are going to eat each other. Literally before, hell. Before they like clear the... I just don't want to be... Anywhere near it. Elon Musk's sex slave or <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> whatever. Uh, crazy shit. So the, you know, that, that I think part of, to me is like that the stuff around climate change, I think is a, is, a, is a useful reminder that we're, we're all in this together. So when people talk about, like when people talk about whiteness, they, impl- what the implication is that there is a material incentive to be invested in racism. And I don't, and I don't think there is because the material incentive is, is to fix climate change. So the major investment in whiteness to me is not really based on the material conditions, somewhat, sometimes marginally, but the real investment in whiteness is psychological. It's like, you know, it's, I don't want to believe that everything that I know and love is built on a pile of black and brown bodies. Yeah. And, you know, that everything I know and love comes from plunder. Like, I can't think about that. And that that's, um, that it's these, a lot, it's these like, the psychological justifications of status more than like the material conditions. And, you know, we like, unless we, you know, need to figure out how a strategy around neutralizing that, um, uh, in order to prevail. And so, you know, again, so for us as a union, one of the things that's nice about unions is that unions are, you know, multiracial organizing of the working class in action um, with flaws like that union members white I mean that like you you know you see the data right I saw I, saw, I saw, basically like if you look at white non-college educated households okay if they're in a union if it's a union household 60 40 they vote Democrats if it's non-union 60 40 they vote Republican so it's not that unions make people less racist magically but they give, they, it's like the politics are social. People's values are based on what they're being organized around. Mm. And so if people are organizing you around racism, then that's, that's becomes the leading edge of your politics. If people are organizing you around something else, uh, uh, then your, your politics. So it's like as a union organizer, you get to have these different kind of conversations about like, I don't care if you don't like, you know, Sikhs. Right. I mean, this is literally conversations that I've had. I don't, doesn't matter to me if you don't like that guy or those, those people, uh, you're going to lose your health benefits unless you can yeah. get them to all go and strike with you. Yeah. So what are you going to do about it? You know, right. Uh, your kid has asthma, 
And right. do you want to pay for the inhaler or not? Like, we have to go get those people to, to be with us. And that's a very different kind of a conversation than, like, well, I read the new Jim Crow and, you know, mm. the plight of the... And we should be allies, or what? Like, it's a very different kind of conversation around around racism. Sure. Um, yeah. Well, um, I, I I do want to wrap this up because I have to go to the bathroom. <laughs> um, but uh, there's a lot of great stuff in here. Uh, I feel like to summarize, activism works. Uh, get connected. Right. I don't know. Read Rebecca Solnit's book. Yeah, um, see all, see everything that's that's working. Buy my album. Go on strike. Go on strike. On, yeah, let's do some comedy plugs. You've got an album. It's called the Whiteness Album. Oh shit! <laughs> Available wherever comedy can be streamed or downloaded. All right. Do you have any shows coming up? Uh, the big thing is my monthly show at the Alamo Draft House with Natasha Muse, the movie riffing show, Riffers Delight, where we talk over the movies. September Monday, September thirtieth. This month we're doing Swamp Thing. So fun. Yep. All right. Thank you so much, Nato. Sure thing. Thanks. Go.